Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and I'm with Sam Backer as always. Today, we're doing a little two-parter for you. Uh, first, we're going to jump into Luminate's mid-year music report just came out. Eagerly anticipated. <laughs> yeah, offers all the latest trends regarding sales and listening habits. And uh, we're going to try to unpack what that all means. Um, and particularly uh, the focus on super fans. Not just a fan, a super fan. Uh, and in the second half, we're going to dive into Hollywood's writers, now writers plus actors strike. See what that's all about. And think on the ways some of the complaints and existential threats re- relate to the uh, music industry. Uh, before we get started, please rate and review us and follow us on all the socials. We've got a newsletter that comes out every now and then, and you should probably read it. And you can subscribe to it at moneyfornothing.substack.com. So come sign up. Okay, so to dive in, starting with the Luminate Mid-Year Music Report, which uh, Luminate is like a data and insight company. And each year around summer, they drop a report to detail the trends in the music industry. And as usual, there's a lot to uh, talk about in this extensive report. And yeah, so that's exactly I mean, like, what we're it's, doing. it's okay, interesting so we went, because we like, there's it very few with, like a fine tooth comb, uh, like data. And uh, I guess so what, what about, right? you know, and, we're mentioning super fans. But what are some of the, the things the that stood few, out to you, like, Sam? Like the fields of raw data that provide everyone else's talking points forever. And so, yeah, so like there's a, a, a bunch of like various like facts and figures that were interesting. But like one of the, the, the primary ones is what, what you were saying, this idea of super fans as driving engagement and I, and I think that we wanted to talk about it because it fits I think really nicely with this kind of broader new focus from the industry on changing the way that people think about think about what's valuable in music listenership right so this we talked a, a couple episodes ago about universal music kind of throwing its weight around um and thinking about if streaming were going to change, how is it going to change, and maybe not valuing all streams the same. And I think this is this report is part of a uh, part of a similar discourse, right? Which totally makes sense if you think about the evolution of streaming in its core markets. Like the U.S. is saturated with streaming. It's there's not that much streaming growth. Europe is fairly saturated. I mean, according to this report, there was a 50% increase in streaming in Europe in the last year, which like seems to me to be hard to believe if you think about, I don't know, England or France or Germany. But um, I think generally like what you're seeing is is um, kind of a, a sense that there's a limit. There's peak stream, right? And various places are hitting peak stream. And once you've hit peak stream, there's a question of like, okay, if these companies have promised us unlimited growth forever, and that growth is beginning to slow, or at least it's the rate of growth is beginning to slow. How are you going to make more money? And so beginning to like disaggregate listenership and focus on certain subsections of listeners and how they consume music in its increasingly diverse set of commodity streams um, is really interesting, um, both for what it says about like where the music industry might go and... Um, for what it says about, I guess, music as a commodity form. Yeah, and it surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, the vinyl sort of boom that we've been seeing, I guess, I don't know, what, like probably over a decade now is like just continuing to go sh- to go strong. And yeah. it's actually like now 
being picked up by a Gen Z, essentially. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really of... good point. I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, it, it's definitely crossed and maybe even accelerated as it crossed the generation gap. That like, it's not, it's not just millenn- aging, rapidly aging millennial hipsters in Williamsburg. It's like your average Gen Z listener, or maybe not average, but certainly your super fan Gen Z listener is buying vinyl from their favorite artists and not just vinyl is buying a variety of various types of goods from their favorite artists so maybe it like it's worthwhile before we keep talking about this longer is to, is to kind of identify what this report says a super fan is maybe just to like give you quick numbers though before we dive into that just like yeah you know vinyl lp sales were up 21 percent and this is like the 17th consecutive year that vinyl has seen uh, a rise in um, in sales. So, yeah. But like, yeah, so you wanted to go ahead. And basically what you're saying is that fans or super fans are buying, actually buying physical commodities. They're like not happy with just streaming Taylor Swift or streaming Morgan Wallen. Like they want a physical commodity of music from these from from these artists unsurprisingly and i i I think that's like well you said it was surprising or wasn't i said unsurprisingly i mean like i think you know going back to like our critique of like nfts it's like you know i I was telling i was actually texting you last night about how this guy walked up to me in a bar because he happened to hear that like i do some artwork and he was like trying to pitch me nfts and i'm like he's like you know because people like to they like to own things they like to like have something and like he's right but they actually want a physical object not a file on their computer <laughs> but anyways yeah yeah so i mean it's it, in a way it's like it's not surprising to me at all but i think that maybe it being not just like general merch but actually like being like vinyl is maybe like a little what i'm saying is kind of surprising and the fact that it's like jump generations at this yeah, point yeah i mean i agree with all of that i do want to push back a little bit on what you just said though because you were like they want to buy a, a physical music as a physical commodity and i actually don't think and this is where I get way over my skis as like a Gen Z whisperer because, you know, what do I know? But, and like not to mention that like generations are kind of bullshit anyway. That said, I, I, I actually do think that there's a change. I think that the like 90s, early 2000s discourse about music is that like, yeah, people wanted a physical commodity for music. And I actually don't think that that's what's driving this exactly, right? It's, I don't think that, but people want physical commodities. People want to engage with these artists that give their life meaning via cultural performance, via cultural symbolism, and they want to engage with them across multiple, like, in, in multiple ways. But I actually don't think it's about a physical commodity for music. I think it's like a, like, I actually don't know if the music part of the vinyl matters as much, right? Like, there's a lot less of that, like, discourse. And maybe just because it's, like, old hat at this point. But no one's like, the vinyl because it sounds so good. It's, like, vinyl, it's, like, it's it's more, it seems to me to be more about, like, uh, vinyl because it, it allows you to, like, physically position and also partially by, like, symbolically positioned because you're spending the cash on a thing the importance of this act or this community in your life 
right? So it's like I was that that yeah, I wasn't disagreeing with that. I mean, I wasn't saying that people were buying vinyl because of the fact that it sounds better. I think it's because like you are a super fan and like you have the shirt and you have the hat and you have the like specialty whatever and you have the sign ticket and you have the photo and you just want to continue to accumulate objects, commodities to express or show or to feel closer to like that superstar. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's a big change, actually, like a subtle but big change over of the vinyl revival over time. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is basically that maybe like the earlier discourse was that like, oh, vinyl sounds better, you know, the sort of high fidelity kind of snobby, you know, stereotypical uh, music collector, you know, who then like, you know, Every, once a month you know goes and like djs his deep collection at like a cool like cocktail bar in brooklyn it's like not so much really about that anymore uh you personally attacked yeah <laughs> do you, yeah well you know you should maybe actually dj more because you do have like over one billion records no but um no but like you heard it here first <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh but no but like now yeah what you're saying is that it's, it's not so much that now it's really kind of what, what i was just saying where it's like it's more just one more thing that's like a part of stuff to collect maybe that express that 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 fandom yeah and so so really quickly just to be, to be nailed down our terminology according to this report a super fan is someone who engages with a musical artist across kind of like multiple mediums or vectors and specifically someone who engages with a musical artist via like five or more in five or more ways now like i imagine some of that's like listens to them follows them on twitter follows them on instagram bought a shirt, sees them live, etc. But I do think in a weird way, just going back to what you're saying, if you think about like why these people are doing this, that in some ways maybe in a weird, like the same discourse that existed among kind of like the musical snob community in the early 2000s about, oh, vinyl is more real. Having a physical object of the music makes it more real as kind of music and we've talked about this a lot it's kind of like bursting away from its relationship to like a specific set of culture carrying commodities and like expanding out to like this broader more amorphous web of social media and other things it's like it's almost like a people maybe want physical instantiations of their identities given the fact that like so much of internet-based identity can be like so fungible it's so hard to know who people are what people are what they like what their histories are that like having that like the solidity provided by buying nine copies of a taylor swift album is really appealing to people so what you're trying to say right now like if i, if I understand is that this helps solidify and clarify their sort of how they shape their identity as it's presented both obviously in person but mainly like online or that like it wouldn't surprise me if the ways that people have been shaping their identity online can begin to feel a little bit like amorphous given how important that on those online identities are um, as they're like more than half of people, you know what I mean? Like you could imagine like a tipping point where it's like everything's online. And we've talked before about spaces where like Instagram is more real than whatever is actually happening in the street. And I could imagine like physical commodities and expressions of physical commodity, like actually putting your money where your mouth is. If you're in the kind of like discourse driven environments of the internet, the sense of, of, of like reality that 
no, I spent $500 on this thing or these things, that being really appealing to people. I'm actually not so sure I fully agree with what you're saying. And I might be like, maybe I'm mis misinterpreting it. But I think that actually we're at a point now in culture and society where um, we've kind of normalized the sort of categorization of our identities because we're forced to describe it in so many ways, oftentimes through our consumers' habits and our purchasing habits. So if you're on a dating app outside of like the bio, you know, there's like all these prompts and like uh, categories in which you can go ahead and like click that like are basically just like, yeah, sometimes maybe just your day to day habits, but also generally are like related to some sort of consumerism that is somehow supposed to then help the people who are swiping understand you more. And this goes all the way back to, I say, like, you know, early days of social media when it comes to like MySpace, where, you know, like, what's the music you like? You got to make a list. What's the bio? What's this? Where are you from? All this stuff. So I, I actually think that it's like, maybe it is that to a certain extent, but I actually think it might be like sort of an extension of that. Because I think it's quite normal now for people to like, have to try to attempt to differentiate themselves from the other 2D square photo of someone, whether it be like on Instagram or a dating app or like some sort of like Facebook. I think they're quite used to that, but maybe this is like a way, an extension of that perhaps. I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't know how much like the actual like owning a physical commodity is something that also extends outward to one's online presence. But I do think that it does obviously oh, like- I'm extend... saying it's like a counterbalance. It's like a counterbalance almost. It's like people are so used to presenting themselves in these ways that can feel unsatisfying that maybe it's like, I bought all of this stuff from this cultural icon who's important to me. And that like allows me to like anchor my identity in a way that just, you know, you're a Lady Gaga fan and you say it on, on Bumble. I'm a Lady Gaga fan and I say it on Bumble. There's no way for me to like ascertain the extent to which you're really a little monster, but like I have all of these things. And so I can like firmly, it like helps me orient myself within this. Community. Yeah. I think, I think maybe that's it. It's like sort of a way of like actually like connecting with someone or like other people, like this sort of like, I think that's it. It's like the sort of alienation, the isolation and the atomization, the just generally being continually online and on one's phone causes this is a way to sort of like take it to the next level and like be a part of some sort of vague community that, I mean, that's real and there. And then you see them all at the Taylor Swift concert. Or but, like connect you know, kind with of yourself, it. you know? I feel yeah. like maybe that's even more, right? Like, because no one can actually tell if the Taylor Swift albums that you have in your picture are actually yours if you've Photoshopped, right? The, 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 the thing that matters is to you at some level. Like, you know, and that allows you to orient yourself, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Regardless of the motivation and the reasons why, it's something that it's a, it's a growing trend. And I think it's also related to another trend that we saw in this in this report that like direct to consumer sales are up 20 percent in the last year, which is just kind of interesting that like, I guess a lot of that also has to do with like direct sales from like, say, like TaylorSwift.com getting like something that's like exclusively from that artist. But I'm also kind of curious, like what you think about this in regards to I'm curious if you kind of think about this in regards to like the role of like the superstar now, because it, it does, it does, because that's something we've also kind of also talked about is that it's like a lot more difficult now for 
the music industry to produce like the Michael Jacksons and the Bruce Springsteen's. Uh, do you feel like this is kind of like a pushback against that sort of that sort of thesis? Yeah, I mean, this data doesn't tell us. That's a really, really interesting question. And I think that the thing that would be indicative of that is like you could break down if you had a graph that presented like number of sales the percentage of sales direct-to-consumer sales or merchandise sales or physical commodity sales in general in relationship to the like size and popularity of the artist you know like is this being driven by a handful of tentpole artists that clearly can have mass cultural impact or is this like your mid-sized midwestern city's biggest hardcore band is like selling a lot of direct to consumer merch and i don't know when this data doesn't tell us but i think that would it'd be really interesting to see if this is about like these massive and like massively affective communities of fans like we keep bringing up taylor swift that's because like the and of course it's to a certain extent media driven but like the impact of the era's tours your era's tour has been crazy and been crazy for the people participating in it like i don't know if you've seen like the videos of like the subway subway cars or like the auditoriums where it's just like all women of a certain age (laughs) and there's like six dudes in the crowd and it they're just like oh i realized that i wasn't afraid in this crowd right like people are having profound experiences with these massive phenomena that i think that you you'd have to be crazy to like not take seriously and so the question is like is it the superstars or is it the um or is it a broader sea change in the way that people are interacting with music i mean interesting well i also think it also relates to like kind of another trend and i didn't mean to interrupt if you have more to say but another trend that we see which is just like you know the rapid growth of like non-english lyric music and i can't think of think of like k-pop and the sort of fandom that we see and the super fandom that we see around k-pop starting to like maybe like directly maybe not directly and like you said, maybe it's something more to do with like the current cultural climate. But the, like, I think that like the sort of fandom that we're seeing around this era story does seem to like be very similar to like what we see like in K-pop and the fandom there. I mean, coming from different places, and obviously as we've see, as we've learned on the K-pop episode that we did, like it's it's much more complex. It's almost kind of a mix of like almost like sports fandom, maybe I don't know. <laughs> but but um. But uh, I don't know. I do see this being like a sort of similarity there. I mean, am I crazy for that? No, 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 no. And I think that that that, that sense that like there's a broader model for this, um, and that certain kinds of fan practices are moving out, um, being replicated both by fan communities, right? That I think that clearly, like, whether or not K-pop has like peaked as an American phenomenon, various people have various views on that. Um, and you can listen to our uh, two episodes ago to kind of hear about how some of the major K-pop um, record companies slash talent agencies are negotiating these changes. I think that the um, the example of these hyper-organized communities and the level of fan engagement, I can't but believe, like, influenced, influenced other fan communities. It's like, whoa, there's a level more intense of fandom and fan organization and ways to organize your life with and through and around fandom. And I imagine that's both functioning at the level, at like a grassroots level, but also at like a record company level. Because I think that for companies that are seeing, beginning to imagine the limits of streaming payouts, that 
K-pop is a really good example of how you create a commoditized universe for interactions, right? Like the idea that people are paying a subscription in order to get the opportunity to buy tickets is like, that's printing money. That's beautiful, baby, right? Like <laughs> imagine if if every fan, if like every fan of a large artist in America belonged to a $10 a month fan club, right? Just so they had the, yeah. the opportunity, the honor to maybe see Morgan Wallen live. Like that's a lot of money um, and a lot of ways of kind of uh, creating, a, 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 as you like to say, like new touch points for these artists. And so I do think a lot of this stuff is emanating um, or at least related, whether whether it in, just in terms of like K-pop got to it first or direct influence. But I do think that that, that is a model that we're going to be seeing more of. And I mean, I think it'd be pretty silly not to think that like, managers of taylor swift or like you know c-suite executives at like universal are like seeing like how k-pop like operates and being like how do we fucking replicate that shit here yeah 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 and and like also thinking about and this is another part of uh what luminate argues about these super fans is that they're influential right that they're able to that the, the people who are very involved in an artist are more likely not just to go see them themselves but to like having these like almost like shock troops for yeah like it's like a street team yeah basically yeah it's like a street team and certainly in a in a very manipulatable manipulable chart environment where having a number one song can get you more attention like the kinds of things that again k-pop fans figured out how to do to like boost their acts to number one like in some ways like hacking the 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 chart informational complex we might call it the billboard complex um that that's actually really efficacious in terms of like forwarding their artists their artists careers which i guess like is how i I maybe want to wrap up this this segment of the show because i'm really interested to hear your your thoughts saxon on like what it means for almost like commoditization for the sake of commoditization like buying things for the sake of having bought things which is like one way to read like some of these purchases like what that tells us about i don't know what music means in people's lives and what that tells us about like music right that like just listening to the music isn't enough that something is clearly lacking when you're just doing when you're just streaming an artist and that people want more but that it's like being it's being mediated so effectively through consumer-oriented commodities. This this should go down like a real rabbit hole, and like I feel like my take my take is like a little bit dark, actually, <laughs> and like kind of a bummer maybe. Uh, but you know, it's it, it's. Uh, I I heard one time, and I and I because I take terrible notes, I can't remember who wrote it, but someone one time I read wrote that when a when a society or like when you're in a community that doesn't like validate like your who you are and like value like you as a person and like then like what we oftentimes do is we turn to we turn to chasing fame which i thought was kind of an interesting thing and i and i and i think that like i don't know that's the first thing that came to my head here where it's like these fans aren't obviously chasing fame per se but they are trying to constantly in some way get closer to if not actual Taylor Swift, or, you know, maybe we should stop using her as an example, but, <laughs> you know, Morgan Wallen, um, that there is this sort of desire to at least get closer to, or a part of, like, the myth that's 
surrounds this sort of stardom and to like have like a little bit of that like mythical star power fairy dust like fall on your like head and i think you know obviously that's mediated through buying shit and commodities right and then of course like the capitalist way is that like you know market begets market begets market right so (laughs) i mean there's the great like really dating myself here but there's that great scene in space balls when the sort of fake like yoda character that's uh played by mel brooks like suddenly there's like this this scene where in the middle of the movie you're watching space balls has this sort of uh, re- uh reflexive moment where it's like merchandise 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 space balls the 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 lunch pail, Spaceballs, the doll, Spaceballs, like all this stuff. And it's just like, you know, I mean, that was like in the 80s, right? But it's like, they're going to go to continue and capitalize this on as much as possible. And like you said, if we plateaued or maybe not plateaued, but like streaming has kind of like has like a limited amount of to offer. And since like, let's be real, the, the fucking failures of uh, NFT to satisfy super fans, although, you know, maybe they maybe they do have, you know, uh morgan wallen shirtless nft gifts i don't know possibly send Um, them please yeah yeah please send them (laughs) yeah um people are gonna chase after this kind of stuff you know and i think it like go full circle to go back to the original quote i said is that i think that oftentimes even the fact that we're like mediating our identities like through someone else's fame and stardom through their merchandise and this isn't like take take away reflects let me finish the sentence reflects on maybe like the state of like where us as a subject in the capitalist society is in the sense that we're continuing to feel more atomized and more uh lonely and more uh not a part of any kind of community or we've never even known what it is to be a part of like a really like strong community and so we like are like just almost naturally as human beings reaching out towards this, towards these, uh, these groups of people and these super fans. And in doing so, the only way that maybe we know how, if we're like a 16 year old, who's only known this as, as their like real reality as, sorry, as their reality, then like, we're going to go ahead and just buy shit. <laughs> Cause that's, that's how we're taught. That's how we're meet. That's how, that's how we like shape our identities now. I mean, this is, the, this is nothing new. And I just, I think, I do think, I just think it's, it's fascinating that, despite this like heavily technological world where we're like constantly on our screens and constantly online that there is this still return to the 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 mythical the myth of the object right you know like i don't know you know thinking about like benjamin or whatever you know or like marx you know it's it's just it's fascinating that it's still it's still there it's still there you know to have that limited edition whatever to have that physical thing to you know whatever we're saying whether it's like to find your identity to be a part of community Whatever it may be, whatever it may be. But I do want to I do want to add, though, you know, that that's not to take away from like the magic of the music. Right. Um, which I mean, I, I'm not I'm not taking away from the, the real emotional connection that that these millions of fans are making and have uh, when they and, and when, when they hear Taylor Swift's song. And, you know, I've actually talked to not to keep rambling here, but just to finish up what I was saying, like, you know, I've talked I, I don't really get Taylor Swift like we've, we've talked about this. But like I've talked to uh, younger people who are really into Taylor Swift, and uh, what oftentimes comes up is that they talk about how she speaks to their experience. So I mean, that's another thing, you know. That I mean, like, okay, that's interesting because I mean, what I I just talked about like that that experience. So maybe like the 
there ha- you can't you can't ignore the, the the importance of the music is what I'm saying is that like these lyrics and this sound in a increasingly like alienated isolated society is making them feel a connection even when they are alone listening to it on a bus or at home or whatever you know regardless of like the millions of fans that are also doing it you know they they feel a connection to Taylor and what she's singing about or or Morgan so I mean yeah I can't uh, what I said earlier about you know I, I don't want to take away from the music and the connection and that that does seem to be actually the conduit that kind of that that connects all of this and obviously we can go down a long path about about what music was and what music is now in a commodified form which we've done a little bit but uh we'll we'll save it for this episode we'll save it for this episode I I do I do just want one last point on this that I think is really interesting also that I kind of love is is the irrationality. Of yeah, it, yeah, right. Right? <laughs> and, I, and I mean that and I, I mean that in terms of if you think about like a lot of commodity purchases, of course there are, you know, there's your base ones, right? Um, you know, like you need food, you need shelter. Then there's a lot of times like there's the myth of progress, right? Like this car is better. It will fulfill this need. It will, this toaster is better. This espresso machine is better. And then there's often also like a somewhat competitive distinction, you know? Like this jacket is cooler. These shoes are limited edition. And in, in kind of a the, the neoliberal, like the malignant neoliberal version of this is like, not only do these shoes make me different, but if I keep them in the box, they're also an investment opportunity. And what's cool about this consumption, as far as I can tell, is that there's, it's kind of not that in the same way, right? It's not like I'm flaunting, it's, there's let, right? It's, I'm buying this to be part of something more than I'm buying this because it's limited and rare and you don't have yeah, it. No, the, yeah, no, I, I think, think that's true. And it's like, unfortunately, it's like, yeah, go ahead. And go ahead. It, it's not about progress either, right? It's not like I'm buying this because it's a better version of the thing. It's like I'm, in some ways, it like reveals in this weird, like we've come all the way around maybe that like money's per, money is symbolic and money's purpose is to allow us to like, at a fundamental like core human meaning making level like symbolically orient ourselves in the world like that's what human beings need is they need symbolic orientation through like totemic objects and money can be that but also like these goods are like magical in the realist sense and like that the money the idea that money's only purpose money's truest purpose is to allow you to symbolically is like the best thing you can spend it on is healthcare and totems is like a wild a wild place to end up in in 2023 and and it's where we fucking do politics still i mean like the whole debate around like gas stoves and like electric stoves i mean i saw this this like this uh this exhibit at uh, at the whitney recently by this this artist named josh klein and he was kind of like trying to explore this idea around uh, how uh, like uh, America is divided maybe right or left or whatever through like purchases and he was he had actually had like taken mm-hmm. physical items like the gas stove and an electric stove and he had like somehow split it right down the middle and then welded them together to kind of showcase that conflict and there was like everything from like you know the iPhone versus like an Android phone and then like a, you know like a Vitamix versus like whatever you know another kind of blender as like and it's like it 
it seems so silly, but it, yet it is. It's like it's how we kind of it, it's so wrapped up in like every part of it's our real of our it's existence. It's real. Silly. It's real. It's like you, it's I, you the listen, realist. Yeah, right. You listen to Morgan Wallen. Like that is a like. Def- it's not just because you love his music and he speaks to you and like you're a super fan. It like actually is like can like carry over into like your identity as like an individual in the United States and like what that means as far as like you know socially like urban or rural like right or left religiously like it like it's all carried over just because you have a you go to his concert and you're a fan it's all wrapped up and like and then of course that just extends out to the commodities as well yeah it's crazy it's crazy well on that on that note on that note we're gonna go ahead in the second half pivot to uh the in the second half we're going to pivot to the writer's strike you probably have heard writers guild of america who basically make up all the writers in hollywood went on strike in early may it's still going on and recently was joined by sac aftra aftra yeah aftra yeah uh, the union that represents actors and other media professionals in hollywood and the beef stems from an ongoing labor dispute with the alliance of motion pictures and television producers or amptp over a number of issues there's a whole bunch of issues here, and a lot of them are quite existential. Um, do you want to go ahead and like run through kind of just a basic sort of like background of like what the issues are and like where the strike stands and maybe a little bit of history and then we can dive into like how it relates to music? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so basically folks listening to this podcast are probably also paying attention to this like biggest labor story in the last decade of American life, maybe. Um Except when, like, Congress goes on strike (laughs) because they refuse to fund themselves. And, yeah, it's crazy. So, like, the writer's strike, the writers last struck in, like, 2007, 2008, something like that, um, which kind of came and went, produced some fabulous late-night TV. But the last time everyone struck, and so the writers and the actors um, was in the 60s when, believe it or not, union leader Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah, what? It's so weird. It's so strange. Uh, um, so was weird. the head of SAG-AFTRA. And basically that was about, um, those strikes were about the the massive changes to, to uh, Hollywood and uh, being brought on by television. Um and the ways in which artists were or were not being um, adequately compensated for their work as everyone really started to realize what a massive uh, geyser of cash TV was going to be. Um, and it created in a series of very complicated negotiations over a long period of time. And as is often true in these things, the, the actors settle first, partially because like everyone knows who they are. Um, and they have more leverage and it took the writers a lot longer to get a, 
my understanding is a somewhat worse deal. But basically, like, there was enough power in that strike to really fundamentally reshape at a basic level how the industry was going to function. And the biggest thing to come out of it was the creation of residuals, right? This idea that when your when reruns of your things that you worked on were played, because right, there's no performance royalty uh, or mechanically mechanical reproduction royalty the way there is in music. When your TV show or mo- when your TV show was replayed or when your movie appeared on TV, like you'd get paid again. So all of those stories of like Seinfeld making actors on Seinfeld making millions of dollars years later are based on the residuals, right? This idea that if you could get a, if you get a show into reruns, you were set basically for life. And like, if you're a small, and I also think that in terms of like the, the middle quote unquote middle class, right? If you had, uh, if you had like a small part on a show, you'd, not making millions, but you could get a steady stream of income that would help you along with all the other new pieces that, you know, in that kind of like uh, uh, elevated freelancer lifestyle that like character actors in Hollywood make, right? You could kind of uh, piece together a real living, a middle-class living for a lot of these actors. And the sense is that both of these strikes are happening at the same time because there is a there's been a series of structural changes in the, the TV and film industries and that as Hollywood is, I would say like as it's moving forward into this next decade, as things are getting rougher as a result of changed financial conditions, like macroeconomic financial conditions, it's like now is the time to figure out what this next period is going to look like because it, for a lot of these writers, they feel like, what had been a solid gig, what had been a solid way of life that was also tremendously culturally productive, right, was slipping out of their grasp. grasp. And so, like, different sectors have different kinds of critiques, but a lot of this is being driven by kind of, like, the elephant in the room, which are these new, fully integrated streaming services that because... Yeah, Netflix, right? And... And Netflix, which is important, not just because they they didn't just financialize like Hollywood, which has already been financialized, but they I don't know if there's a verb form of turned into a tech valuation, techified, made tectonic. Yeah, they disrupted. They disrupted the system and they disrupted the system by kind of creating a giving themselves access to infinite capital to just like burn money by producing all kinds of shows and products that they didn't have to then and then and then having a kind of closed system so unlike a movie which has a box office netflix could spend movie level money on shows and then not have to like let anyone know the audience numbers and pushed in like a first time as tragedy second time as farce rerun of the pivot to video that destroyed journalism basically all these entertainment companies were like oh yeah the netflix model that's the way to do it and have like tried to follow to make it so their valuations uh their stock valuations would be understood as a tech company and not as like a relatively stable business that has an actual bottom line and an actual like profit and loss statement that you could understand um maybe not understand that is a (laughs) wild simplification of the kind of uh tax chicanery that hollywood has always done but like 
a profit or loss statement that somewhere existed in the world rather than like a company that's based entirely on like vibes and tech vibes and like yeah like things like how many subscribers do you have like matters for the vibes but like it's all vibes at the bottom and so like because of that because of changes that that kind of are emerging out of that you're having increasingly tight labor conditions um as the the promise of that pivot has started to fall away you're getting less and less money thrown away desires by these companies to cut the bottom line the change to digital to digital production has created all kinds of like new labor conditions so you get really small writers rooms you've got way fewer episodes being produced so actors even if they're being paid like on a per appearance rate like can get paid less a lot of times you've got weird seasons no no residuals no residuals or like or, lack of residuals or yeah. very 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 little residuals from from places like netflix because there aren't seasons exactly they aren't rerun they're on demand um you're also getting like just in terms of like the the um the, the rise of precarity in the, the sense that like shows are eight seasons long and they'll be like you're on a show you run through the show it's maybe there's a next season next year maybe it's in three years um all kinds of and and then like you're stuck in a contract and you can't get out of it and you don't know what's happening and just so that all of that was before i think the the threat of ai that's not quite here yet but is certainly coming in terms of what that could do to writers what that could do to actors especially like as we've seen relatively unsatisfying but like increasingly effective use of i would even disagree like actually like i of, did, of you, like, did you happen to see the like the Bruce Willis like Russian telephone like AI? No, I didn't. It's like really good. It's like scary good. And that happened two years ago. Yeah. Or or like uh, you know, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen The Mandalorian. The the Mandalorian, right? Where they have it was the first effective use I've seen of that where I don't know if you saw it, Saxon. You probably didn't, but like at the end of at the end of season two, like Luke shows up. And it's like young Luke, and like be, for a plot for a plot device, he's not on screen for very long, but it's like a very effective like Luke Skywalker shows up, and you're like, oh shit, it's Luke, and like no, it's not not, and it's like Luke at, looking like he did at the end of the Empire Strikes Back, basically, and so it's wild, and yeah, and these things are gonna gonna continue accelerating as is the way of all as is the way of all flesh, digital or otherwise. I think one of the reasons, and I think the reason why we wanted to talk about this, you might be asking yourself, like, how exactly does this relate to music? And I think the first thing to bring up is just a lot of the sort of issues or the existential crisis that's at hand here that's inherently fueling this strike are, if not totally. the same, like extremely similar to the complaints and the worries uh, that we've been hearing for like almost now a decade from musicians about lack of payouts increasing in like ai like generated you know music the, you know the algorithms the Fewer lack of like transparency doing, doing more things and, for less right? money and it's it, and it sucks to like it sucks to say that oh yeah or like you know the consolidation of like the major labels you know which is also yeah. kind of like a, you know not the direct complaint but is like contributing to a lot of this like uh and it sucks to say this but like the lack of a fucking union is like screwing over the musicians and it like, and that's like one advantage and we'll see how this all ends up. But that's one advantage that like the writers guild and the actors can do is that they have an unusually 
highly unionized, strong union that can just like stop work down tools as they, as they say. Yeah. 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 And it's even interesting that there's like clear the power imbalance between the two of them. Right. Like the, the writers, like no one knows who they are. Like, sure. It's like Stephen King on, on, on the picket line, but like, what does Stephen King look like? You don't know it the same way. If I say Brad Pitt, like Brad Pitt is on strike. <laughs> I mean, look, the Fran Drescher is the head of the union now. Like it's crazy. Um, that's great. I love it. I know it's so perfect. Yeah. So it, it it's it's I think maybe like you said, Saxon, like just the opportunity to um, sit back and think about the structural differences that these forms of organization make in terms of potentially laying out the playing field for what happens next. Because I think that one of the the big differences that's happening in this story versus what's happening when we when we talk about big changes in the music industry, right? Is like technology's impacting all of these media, right? And technology allows new players, it makes old forms of payout structures uh, increasingly ineffective, it undercuts prior powers, does all kinds of stuff, right? And so every so often, right? Like, and, and one of the one of the things that, like, I think that we have kind of been discovering as, as you know, d- doing the research uh, for this podcast is the ways in which it's um, sure culture has like gradual evolution, but it also has these moments of like dramatic structural discontinuity when new laws get passed, new agreements get made that like create a new landscape that then everyone kind of negotiates and manipulates to to the best of their abilities and so like recently we've talked about um the potential moves that that the major labels are making to shake up the streaming ecosystem that they sort of accidentally created the rules of the streaming ecosystem that they sort of accidentally created in 2008 2009 right that they're starting to negotiate with the companies they're maybe thinking about new laws to like change from a raw payout streaming system to one that values different kinds of engagement or that values different kind of music differently. And at some level, that's the kinds of negotiations that are happening in the music, in, sorry, in the film industry right now, right? And those are also the kinds of negotiations that happened in the 60s with the last ones of the strikes where residuals got created. And it's just crazy to see instead of a, a, a version of an in, of a creative industry like the music industry where like the power players are the major labels the streaming companies the tech companies congress to have another force there that can speak for labor that just is able to say like no 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 we need this law passed we need this agreement made and it's fascinating because it's from like a purely even from a purely business perspective, right? A vision of the music industry where basically, it's not, put it this way, it's not in the music industry's best interest to make it so that no one can make a living, so that no one can make a living making music. Because if they do that, there will be less good music. You actually want, and we've talked about this a lot, right? You want like a healthy creative economy so that, you get good music made. And in places where there's a healthy creative economy, they make more music, they make more innovative music, and it's 
more profitable. And in countries and, and situations where that economy falls away, it's very hard to like generate from a purely business perspective, generate profits. And in like, I guess we're not telling anyone anything particularly new here. It's like capitalism isn't always the best at organizing its own, organizing in its own best interests, right? Like in the, people will take and companies will take like short term measures that destroy the ground on which they stand. I mean, like look at humanity right now, (laughs) literally like in every single sector related to climate change, literally destroying the ground on which they stand. And that's, I would argue, like, to a certain extent, what is maybe happening in the film industry. And what's fascinating, um, and there's some great coverage about the ways that is, whether that's the incredible concentration of, the incredible concentration of theater ownership, which makes, instead of, like, slow-burning hits that allow, like, more new you know un, un, unknown relatively unknown projects to slowly gain word of mouth steam i saw this amazing article that uh we can link to in the show notes that, that there hasn't been a new comedy series launched since like 2012 um with the with the hangover and part of it is just the theaters are so concentrated that you need a huge opening weekend and then there's a sharp tail off which means that anything that's going to open on thousands of theaters across the country needs name recognition versus uh movies like i don't know back to the future which opened on some screens got word of mouth slowly gained popularity and like had a gradual build and so you actually get like changes in the composition of the art form in ways that are bad for the art form and it's just crazy to see an industry where because of union power because of the very specific histories and like uh solidarities there's another force that can advocate for like guys it actually if you make it so we can't live the writing is gonna suffer and you're gonna make less money and almost like save hollywood from itself yeah or in a weird way that kind of like saves capitalism from itself maybe i don't know it's interesting it is just kind of i mean you you've really summed it up but i think this you could see this in kind of all creative industries. And I think that like a really kind of macro overarching point is that if you give tax credits to developers in like cities and all the DIY DIY venues and small little like sure. mid-sized venues go away, then like where the fuck are like the bands playing? And then like you don't have a cultural music scene. And then like even then, like how are you selling those shitty condos? <laughs> you know, but it's just like it, it kind of it, it kind of goes back to all this and it's like Capitalism continues to just fucking like churn along and gobble up and like, you know, eat everything in its path. But like, if you don't make it so that like an artist can make a living or in this case, like say like a writer or even like, even like an actor. I mean, like, I'm not gonna name names, but like, I know actors in New York who booked, who booked gigs onto these streaming services, shows that were produced by the streaming services. They got a big paycheck. Two years later, they're back working in a bar in the service industry yeah. because there's no residuals. And it's like expensive to live in New York, but that's what the industry is. You know, this is just one example, you know, but it, I think the overarching point I'm trying to, the macro point I'm trying to make is that like you need to kind of create these spaces that uh, like allow artists to live and work and showcase and try stuff out with trial and error. And I mean, there's a great, there's a great, um, there's a great newsletter that we can go ahead and post, uh, 
in the show notes uh, by Matt Stoller that kind of details the reason why we've gotten to this point and the history of it that we won't go into now. You know, there's a series of like laws that were enacted and the laws were stripped away and like, you know, new technologies and everything. But yeah, if you're going to maintain those spaces and that ability to kind of continue to create like good culture and to continue to like allow for experimentation and all that, then like, where's that going to come from? And unfortunately, with like music, I don't know what your opinion is, but it's really difficult when there's no like strong, there's no union. But here we have like Hollywood actually like putting up that fight and it's like kind of happening like right now, like at the negotiating table. I mean, I, I don't even know if they are negotiating. Uh, there was like a terrible uh, one of the uh, unnamed producer uh, wrote an op ed and like published it in Friday or something about how like the idea was is they're just going to make all the writers like bleed dry until they can't pay their rent and then they'll like come back to work or some horrific thing like that. Uh it's amazing when like when these fucking c-suite people just show their fucking cards like that but um but yeah the, the overarching point is like you know how much will this actually move the needle and change things like i don't know but it's kind of like and tell me if i'm wrong here but it feels like it's kind of like the front line but maybe the only line really yeah yeah and and, and i'm kind of sitting here thinking again about music whether this is a result of like historical contingency or whether there's like a specific elements in the way music is produced that make that make this kind of unionization more difficult. Because sure, you can say like, oh, musicians are flaky, but like, <laughs> I don't think that's it. And clearly, there there have been like Yuma and other current unionization efforts, but like like SAG-AFTRA equity for uh like stage actors like those are like for real for real unions iatsi which is the the stagehand and like grip technical union and like in music clearly like for shows like there are teamsters there a hundred percent but like they're kind of uh, considered very separate from, from the music industry and and like one of the things i'm thinking about is specifically like at a performance level one of the huge differences it seems to me is the um like the kind of communal or interactive nature of a lot of performance of like like movie performance right like you're a perform you're a musician maybe you are in a band before you have a solo act but like mostly like you have a project and that project kind of lives or dies on its own whereas even famous actors they usually start off as small roles in broader things, which means that the kinds of protection that a union gives them did help them at one point in their career and that they worked within a union structure at one point in their career. And so that when they got big, there's like they had that experience. A, they're already a union member, which is like an important thing. Like, you know, freedom of choice. It's this funny thing about unions is like they have to compel uh compel belonging to them in order to get the kind of power to negotiate with bosses so like one level they're already union members but also like they've all every famous actor i'd imagine has had the experience of playing a small part and like getting getting union scale wages and that being way better than not getting union scale wages in a way that musicians no longer do at the same time, some of this and, and this, there's um, some some scholarship on this that I think we should probably do a whole episode about at some point is like there was a big break in the 60s um, for a lot of different reasons. But like the move to rock music did a lot to undermine music unions. Right. Like the jazz players in New York, a lot of times had to be union members in order to play those clubs. 
but once you get into this like new left adjacent radical rock music scene where they're like the unions are old and they're stuffy and they're like forces of oppression which in many ways they were in the 60s right these unions are like sclerotic and very racist often and like opposed to pro-vietnam and opposed to all kinds of radical changes very anti-democratic they they really like cut the legs out from under it also like the idea that you're you're producing you're writing your own music as the kind of default assumption means that again the kinds of uh collaborative elements that used to like that tin pan alley or the brill building um or even like actually how pop songwriting functions now like those songwriters don't have the same kind of cohesive power songwriters is interesting i i could imagine songwriting unionized but you'd have to again you'd have to find a way to force it on record labels and and performers and it's you know it's kind of nice that that battle was won in the new deal era it's a lot easier to have already unionized a place than to unionize it for the first time um so yeah i mean all we need to do is just look at all we need to do is just look at these like singular amazon distribution centers that are trying to unionize and the amount of struggle and pushback they get for just like a and that's not even like all amazon workers that's just like a single warehouse (laughs) so yeah it's for me i think that because of consolidation and like just how like massively strong these you know major labels or the you know these studios in regards to hollywood are it's just so difficult to imagine in music them being able to unionize any kind of mass scale, just considering the amount of like resources and power that, the, you know, the, um, not to mention, not to mention, we've talked about this a little bit before, but not to mention, it'd be kind of hard to maybe get Drake on board. And, you know, I mean, and I, I don't know, it, I think it would have to be a strike maybe from the sort of studio musicians and the songwriters and like, the producers, you know, for like hip hop producers and things like that, it'd have to be coming from them. And oh yeah, then the like, producers it, union and, idea. Yeah, and, and I and love then, like, that idea. Yeah, and that... then like, especially if you look at a place like if you look at the the model in regards to Nashville, where it's like a lot of the country singers. I think Morgan Wallen does write a lot of his own music, but like you know, like a Morgan Wallen, like don't write their music at all. If like, you know, I could see it starting in Nashville. If all the if all the like you know if all the writers like just decided to just collaborate i mean it'd be hard to get them together but if they all just decided to like stop writing uh, i mean country music would come to a fucking grinding halt <laughs> and like as we saw going back to the first part of the show as we saw in that mid mid uh mid-year music report like country music is, is huge right now so um but yeah it, it is still hard to sort of like imagine it but i mean i could see it, it, it i could see a similar path even despite being not having the union you had like the songwriters enough songwriters at least and enough studio musicians to that were you know big big names and like had some sway and but you know i don't i also i don't i don't know if they well anyways that that you know that i think that i could see that happening in a similar fashion that we're seeing in, in hollywood but you know it's 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 i think it's much more of an uphill battle than even what Hollywood has. And I think that the Hollywood writers and the actors that do have quite a battle in front of them, I mean, it's going on for two months now. And I think that also we have to consider like also that there are a lot of sort of lower level workers who are out of work now. And like, you know, having spent a lot of time like living in Atlanta, you know, I've, I've seen it and I've heard about it that PAs and things like that are like getting jobs at cafes now because they just, can't, there's no work. Yeah. 
Yeah. So keeping those people sure. on board and like having them understand like the like long term advantages of that. I mean, it's not going to like fracture the union, but I, I don't know. It could it could start to create some sort of uh, possible internal strife. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I guess I guess we'll just be kind of watching this space. But, you know, surprise, surprise, people like these like tech companies uh, completely uh, upending an industry. And now here we are left with the. Uh, the, the dregs of it and it's actually ruined everything what is a fucking surprise no way like we never talk about this kind of shit on this on this episode <laughs> on this on this podcast ah, like yeah no it's it for me it's just a sense of like when we talk about the coming changes in and maybe yeah maybe this is a little bit grim but right like when we talk about the coming changes that are they're gonna happen in relationship to ai in relationship to new models of commoditization it just i can't help but be struck by the 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 ways in which and again like they're very different industries um kind of going off what you were saying like for me it seems like union activity tends to work when there's a choke point you know like so like stopping production is something you can do it's kind of hard to stop production in some ways the uh a, a, a similar choke point in music though again scattered across a bunch of different things is like these big tours right that are increasingly vital for vital for record industries vital for the music industry in general where like stopping one or threatening to stop one then you're like you're talking about a production that operates on a somewhat similar scale to a big budget movie right stopping a bunch of club shows or like one album being rolled out is pretty is is um doesn't doesn't have this give you the same kind of leverage i don't think um but yeah just just a sense of like how different these negotiations can be when you have another voice we have another when you have a seat at the table right yeah no completely and i mean I, and, the, and the thing is like i think that like maybe a point you know I, I that the importance of that is so important and, I, and i'm sitting here thinking about how this is like such like a, a key pivotal moment because i mean i'm just trying to like game it out into the future right and i'm thinking that like if this last you know if if this strike hadn't happened for like another five years right like the with ai and the power of ai and everything it would only be that that much stronger and i mean i think that that's the real existential threat that maybe you know we should also emphasize to sort of wrap up this this second half is that is that as ai gets stronger oh, I, I never thought about this but it's like it kind of weakens or could possibly weaken the leverage that writers actors particularly producers and songwriters have at that table when they're trying to negotiate contracts or trying to negotiate like, you know, a union deal, because like at some point, maybe the AI will be so strong that like, you know, I mean, not, you know, basically the, the major labels will be like, Oh, you don't want to write. So okay, we'll flip the fucking AI switch and they'll write the fucking, they'll, it'll write the music. I mean, you know, well, that's yet to be seen, but yeah, I never, it won't be as good, but it'll be passable. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. Yeah. So yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I, I think, that's one of the, the things behind this strike is a sense that like you do it now and set the rules or else if you don't set the rules, the rules will get set for you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we'll end on that point and we'll definitely be watching what, what happens and music by bird language. Uh, we apologize for the sort of delay. Sam was in Japan, uh, which maybe he'll mention in a future episode, but uh, we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.